For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. What role does philosophy play in our understanding of God in the way we do theology? We're going to talk with one of my favorite philosophers on today's show. Stay tuned. My guest today is Richard G. Howe. He's a writer and a public speaker and debater in churches and conferences, university campuses, and, and he talks and debates about issues concerning Christian apologetics and philosophy. He's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, which if, if you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about SES, which had such an integral part of my reconstruction and just helping me to answer some of the questions that I had when I was going through a time of doubt. And so he still teaches part-time there. He's a past president of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. And in their free time, Richard and his lovely and just delightful wife, Rebecca, uh, enjoy international travel. And so, uh, Richard, I'm so glad that you're here today. Uh, we've, we've gotten to hang out a bit at the Frank Turek's Cross-Examined Instructor Academy and got to meet your lovely, like I said, just delightful wife, Rebecca, who is just wonderful. And today we're going to talk about philosophy. And I think we were chatting about this a bit before we went on the air, but for some Christians, I think the word philosophy is really misunderstood. I know it was for me growing up in the evangelical church. I, I don't think my parents ever said this to me or a youth pastor, but I just sort of caught it in the air that philosophy is something pagan. That's something Christians don't really do. It's worldly or something like that. And then a lot of times we'll see this verse, Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So we're going to talk about some of this today with, uh, with you, Richard, and you are well qualified in the area of philosophy. So it's just great to have you on the show today. 
Listen, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. I appreciate it so much. Well, I love that at the bottom of your website, it, which is, tell us what your website is so people can go to there because you have so many resources, blogs and articles and PDFs and all kinds of stuff. So in a sudden attack of humility, I bought and named a domain after myself. So <laughs> the website is richardghow.com. Very so good. So don't leave out the G. I can't vouch for what you'll get on the Internet if you don't, but richardg, middle initial ghow.com. Yes, great stuff on there. And I love that at the bottom of, I think it's just about every page, you have a quote from C.S. Lewis. And it's a quote we see in the apologetics world a lot, but it's, it's so good. And it says this, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. And so today we're going to talk about the importance of philosophy for Christians. Uh, That's one thing I've learned as I began to study apologetics and really study good theology. You actually can't do good theology without being aware of philosophy and also doing good philosophy. And so let's start with that verse in Colossians 2.8, Richard, where I'll read it again. Paul is saying, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So is Paul saying there that philosophy is dangerous or that it's it's somehow a bad thing? Well, uh, let's assume that he is, just for the sake of argument for the time being. I don't think that he is uh, saying it in so many words, at least not the way that I've run into this verse commonly employed. But just for the sake of argument, even if Paul was somehow leveling this warning, if you will, that we need to avoid philosophy, then uh, Lewis's comments then are particularly relevant. Because if, if for no other reason, somehow somebody's got to be able to refute whatever deleterious effects are coming from philosophy, whatever those are. So it's sort of analogous to, a, to an MD who is a, uh, you know, say, uh, uh, your personal care physician or an infectious disease or a surgeon or whatever. And they employ uh, and they engage disease, which no one celebrates. And we want to, quote, avoid disease, right? But they do that and they engage the disease because they want to do at least two things, help people avoid from getting infected uh, or injured, or, or if they already are, help them get cured. So minimally, even if philosophy was something that was out of bounds and inappropriate for us, then I think Lewis's comments are are salient in this regard, that somebody among us in the body needs to be conversant enough so that it can stave off these these attacks that come from philosophy. And Aquinas had, centuries earlier, had a similar sentiment when he said, because the teacher of sacred scripture must at times oppose the philosophers, it is, it is necessary that he make use of philosophy. Mm. So at that minimal level. Now, I I think there's more to it than just that, but at least I think that that is an admonition we can take even from Paul's warning in Colossians 2.8. But I would submit to you that it's really, he's not talking about philosophy as we use that term today, of Plato, Aristotle, or Descartes, or Aquinas, or whatever. Uh, in the context, and, and when I speak on this, I often will ask audiences, uh, if I have the opportunity for feedback, what does chapter 2 of Colossians go on to specify as far as the dangers that were threatening the, the spiritual health of the Colossians. And what you find, there was, there was a specific philosophy that Paul was addressing that was plaguing the Colossians, which later became known as Gnosticism. So it was manifesting itself among the Colossians as this insidious form of legalism, mm-hmm. touch, touch not, taste not, handle not. 
And he said, this has the appearance of, of uh, humility, but it has no use uh, for the indulgences of the flesh. So he's not even talking about, I think, a philosophy as we see it today as a discipline. Now, if I may, uh, just to draw a parallel that may help people see the beginnings of how I think philosophy plays into the, to the, to the equation. Uh, I heard someone summarize things this way. Sometimes our understanding of creation, or some, I think they actually use the word nature, but I'll use the word creation. Sometimes our understanding of creation can correct our misunderstanding of Scripture. For example, Joshua 10, when Joshua commands the sun to stand still. This would be now back in the uh, 15th century, 16th century, when Galileo was uh, charging that the sun was actually not moving, it was standing still, and the earth was going around it, and that big, big uh, battle going on. Yeah. And the church authorities appealed to this verse in Joshua 10, and says, look, if Joshua is commanding the sun to stand still, that means it has to be moving. So Copernicus can't be right about this. But, as we all know, within a few centuries, we've all changed our views and said, well, actually, with respect to the earth, the sun is standing still. Okay, so what do we do with Joshua 10 then? Well, now we take that verse as language of appearance. To say, well, it just has the appearance of moving. Just like we take Joel when it says the moon's turned to blood. Nobody believes that the moon has got corpuscles and antibodies and red blood cells. And nobody thinks it literally turns to blood. They say, Joel says it turns to blood because it turns red, light blood. Well, then if astronomy is a discipline that eventually helps us misunderstand our scripture. The adage goes on, and sometimes scripture can help us misunderstand creation, like when all the scientists used to believe that the uh, universe was eternal, and we, knew, we, we, we insisted from Genesis, no, it's not eternal. So just the way astronomy, as an example in both of those, uh, can help us, mis help us correct our misunderstanding of scripture, or itself can be corrected by scripture, then whatever philosophy is, and we haven't really defined it yet, but whatever that is, I submit to you, it too is a discipline that sometimes may aid in helping us understand uh, or correct, if you will, misunderstandings of Scripture. That's where I see how theology needs philosophy. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to get at this early stage into specifics or not, but just as a matter of principle, I go, well, whatever this discipline is, uh, it's a discipline that may be something useful in helping us understand some verses of Scripture, just like astronomy has done that in the in the past. So for someone who's listening to what you just said, let me offer just a little bit of pushback so you can maybe explain if there is a misunderstanding going on in their own minds. Like if they're hearing you say that, you know, something in astronomy or something in science can help us to correct a bad interpretation of Scripture or, or something along those lines— what would you say to someone who might say, well, aren't you then making science your authority rather than Scripture? Okay, this is a good question because I actually do hear this a lot, and I can appreciate what people are sensing there. But I think a better way to frame it is it's not, it's not like we're using, uh, and, and I'm probably partially responsible here for framing it, and now I'm going to qualify the way I frame it. <laughs> it's not so much that we're pitting uh, creation against God's Word, or we're pitting uh, 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 this science as a method against Scripture. It's really trying to understand the role of two different ways in which God has revealed Himself. Theologians call it general revelation, 
and special revelation. So general revelation would be those truths about God that we can discover through his creation. Romans 1.20 says the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the things that are being understood through the things that are made. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or Romans 2, 14 to 15 talks about the works of the law written on the heart. Or Acts 14 talks about God's super, supernatural and superintendence of the affairs of the human race, where he's revealed his providential care for, for the nations. So these, in other ways, the way God has made his creation is supposed to direct us to look at him as its creator. That collectively is known as general revelation. And the theology we glean from that is known as natural theology because it, it just appears to nature's the way God has made it. And of course, then special revelation, in contrast, would be those truths about himself and his will that God has revealed through his prophets, apostles, and then ultimately through the incarnation in, in Jesus Christ. So if we, if we think of it not so much pitting something outside of God against God and his word, it's just one aspect of the way God has spoken through creation, and the other aspect of way God has spoken through his what we now refer to as the Bible. And those two should complement. And sometimes the Bible helps us understand general revelation better, and sometimes general revelation helps us understand the Bible better. And yeah. that's that's in principle what's going on. Yeah, that's well put. And to go back to what you were saying about what Paul was saying in Colossians 2.8 about, you you know, don't be uh, taken captive by philosophy and things along those lines. Uh, just again, kind of using philosophy to reason that out is is an interesting sort of conundrum because we actually do have to use philosophy and, and rules of logic and grammar and all kinds of things to figure out what Paul's actually saying. And interestingly, of course, as you know, Paul actually did use philosophy in evangelism uh, at Mars Hill. He actually quoted the secular philosophers of the day to try to help them understand a point that he was making. So obviously he didn't mean that any kind of philosophy is bad, but but the reference here is, is like you mentioned, that you know, early Gnosticism that was sort of seeping into the church, which was a very specific uh, philosophy. And I think it's so interesting because what I'm thinking about when I was listening to you talk was one of the first lectures I ever heard that suggested some of what you're saying was by Frank Turek. And it was a lecture called Science Doesn't Say Anything, Scientists Do. And that's when the light went on for me because uh, you, know, you hear people say all the time, well, science says this and science has concluded this. But if you understand just a little bit of what's going on there, you understand that it's actually philosophy that's going on there because science is determining, I mean, you know, however you want to define it, it's trying to find the cause of things or figure out how things work. And so scientists can all have the same data. They can all have the same information, but come to totally different conclusions. And the reason that's going on is because they're analyzing the, the evidence. So every scientist who makes a conclusion is actually doing that through philosophy. They're using philosophy, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and I, I think there's kind of put a little, little nuance in here. <clears throat> and I mentioned astronomy before, uh, specifically with reference to whether the sun is the center of the solar system or the earth. Uh, that doesn't mean if someone walks outside, you say, hey, what's the weather like? And they look out the window and say, well, it's, it's, the sun is shining. No one would say, well, you must be an astronomer or you must be quote, doing astronomy. No, it's not so much that observing the sun shining is doing astronomy as much as uh, observing the sun 
touches on a, a thing like the sun, the deeper analysis of which would involve the discipline of astronomy, right? Yeah. So to your point, Paul and indeed scientists, as Frank is making reference to, they employ uh, categories, protocols, methods, data, the analysis of which involves philosophy, like, for example, truth. So if a scientist says, well, evolution is true, he's obviously employing a category, truth, that is itself the category that the discipline of philosophy is uniquely qualified to discuss at, an, at, a, at a deep level. It doesn't mean that everybody that says something is true then is, quote, doing philosophy. Some people I, hear, I only say this because I hear people say, well, if you use the categories, you're doing philosophy. No more than if I say the sun's shining, am I doing astronomy? But there is a place, just as there's a place for the astronomer to, to help us understand a deeper analysis of the things that we just observe normally as humans, the philosopher, I think, has to be there, or at least philosophy has to be there to help us sort of parse out and understand these various categories, protocols, uh, procedures, and, and, and data that philosophy is, again, uniquely qualified to, to deal with. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking even about how important, like just to your point, that it's so important that there are those among us in the body of Christ who have the education, who have the knowledge to be able to interact with bad ideas, because I'm thinking of one specifically that I have to in, in, interact with all the time in the progressive Christian movement, which is this idea that the whole Christian narrative of the fall in Eden to the re the need for redemption to the restoration and essentially heaven and hell in the future, that this is all coming from just a pagan Greco-Roman philosophy. And, and I'm so thankful for people like R. Scott Smith at Biola who know Aristotle, they know Plato, and they, they understand what those philosophers were saying and can answer some of these progressive ideas that are trying to literally throw out the whole Christian gospel because they're saying, you know, and if there was none of us here that could, that were equipped to answer that, then there'd be a lot of confused Christians. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and, and back to an earlier point you made about uh, uh, the people that think that philosophy has nothing good to answer or to, to offer to the conversation, lest someone throw the baby out with the bathwater. At the same time that uh, a lot of things that we're battling as Christians are the implementation of bad philosophy, as Lewis referred to, as Aquinas referred to, there are also, as just a matter of fact, categories and, and data from philosophy that the church has deliberately inculcated. I, I defy anyone to have a orthodox conversation about the, the Trinity or the two natures of Christ or the federal headship of Adam without employing the categories of substance or nature or essence, subsistence, the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ, uh, the, the, uh, how Adam could be the federal head over the whole, all of humanity. Well, that's a universal. Right there, I've, I've introduced four or five categories that that literally the church borrowed from Greek philosophy of the thinkings of people like Plato and Aristotle. So when when a person make, raises this uh, this alarm, well, you know, you just need to avoid philosophy. You go, well, then explain the Trinity to me. Uh, it's like that joke, you know, that we've, we've told uh, 
uh, you can do this for any discipline. And I saw a meme where God says, well, I don't think we need theology. We just need the Bible. Or, no, no, I don't think we need theology. We just need Jesus. And the guy says, well, who is Jesus? He says, well, he's the son of God. He goes, ah, now you're doing theology. Mm-hmm. You know, so in the same thing goes for philosophy. You know, you, you say, well, I don't think we need philosophy. We just need the Bible. Well, explain to me the Trinity. Well, God is one nature in three persons. Ah, now you're employing philosophical categories. Yeah. And you're not going to be able to unpack these doctrines uh, without some tacit, if not explicit, appeal to these categories that come explicitly from Greek thought. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting, too. And I'd, I'd like to drill down on that a little bit, because when we think about, so you, you mentioned borrowing ideas from Greek thought. Just because Aristotle got some things wrong doesn't mean he was wrong on everything. And, and I think like a rich uh, understanding of philosophy will help us with that. So if, if a, the, a theologian, and I want you to kind of explain this because you'll be able to do it in much better nuance than I will. But, you know, like, for example, Aquinas took some of the work of Aristotle and made corrections. He, he you know, decided, you know, I don't think Plato's right about this. I think Aristotle got this right, but he's wrong here. And let's make these corrections along the way. And so when the progressive sort of... Uh, objection comes in by saying, hey, they were influenced. The assumption is that they were unknowingly influenced and therefore we should, you know, we should throw that completely out. But as R. Scott Smith made a point when he was on this podcast is, you know, Aristotle didn't get everything wrong. And so maybe you can, you can talk a little bit about that. Like, is that a bad thing that early theologians, maybe if they were uh, using the work of Aristotle or Plato or in some way to explain the Trinity, how, how do we make sense of that as modern people now? Yeah, and so just as uh, you know, Newton didn't invent gravity, right? So gravity is just a, is part of the nature of the physical yes. world. Uh, but no one can deny that Newton had some insights that helps us and helped the scientists to better understand the nature of gravity, which was already preexistent before there was a Newton. And the same thing with Einstein and other scientists we could pick out. So Aristotle didn't invent the laws of logic, obviously. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where uh, God says, uh, the day you eat, you shall die. And Satan said, you shall not die. Well, Adam and Eve knew they both couldn't be true at the same time. That's what we call the law of non-contradiction. And, and they didn't have to go into a, a diatribe about the laws of logic. It was just normal for people to know that contradictions couldn't be true. What Aristotle or Plato or other philosophers have done is, is begin to do an intense analysis of things like uh, logic or things like probably the things that intrigued the Greeks initially were, were, were these two questions. Uh, how is it that things throughout that they have their change. A tree goes from a little sapling to a big, tall tree. What is it about the tree that allows it to change and at the same time be the same tree? We don't think it's just a different tree every instant, right? But everybody would think, is that the tree you planted last year? Man, that's huge. Yeah, it's the same tree. So the Greeks were very curious about, well, what can we understand about what makes a thing the same thing throughout all its changes? So people like Plato and Aristotle and others have contributed their speculations about this. And people subsequent to them, the church fathers and and onward, have reflected on their reflections to see this seems plausible to me. This seems the best way to account for it, blah, blah, blah. And that's what the Christians have done. So you're exactly right. It got so bad that by the uh, 1200s, around the late 1200s, about 1277 or so, um, a, a number of doctrines were 
condemned to be taught uh, in the University of Paris, which was sort of the hub of Christian thinking at the time in the university level. And a lot of those were Aristotelian. Well, uh, not without merit were they condemned. Aristotle believed the universe was eternal. Aristotle didn't believe there was a soul that survived the death of the body. Aristotle didn't believe that God was some kind of creator. Uh, in fact, he had a whole array of gods up, uh, up in the, uh, up in the uh, upper realms of reality and such. Certainly, they weren't gods to be worshipped. Well, none of those things are compatible with Christianity. So when people like an Aquinas, for example, begin to pick up on Aristotelian doctrines that he thinks can help his Christianity, it's not a surprise that he was sort of vilified for that, as others were uh, in, the thir- in the 13th century. And, and you sort of have the same thing even earlier with, with Plato. Augustine picks up a lot of stuff from, from Plato. Well, Plato believed in preexistence of the soul, which Augustine believed even as a Christian for a while, before he more or less got disabused of that, studying the scriptures. So uh, fully acknowledge the fact that, that there are things in philosophy that are lurking out there like predatory cats that mm. can really jump on you and, and just scandalize Christian thinking. But it doesn't follow from that that they uh, have the philosophy has nothing to offer. And I don't mean to keep making this parallel, but we see the same things in the sciences. Mm-hmm. All, I think many Christians could pick out things that scientists say that we would say, well, that's just not true. Like, you're just the product of the chemistry of your body. You don't have a free will. And so we'd say, well, that's, that's not true. We know that's not true. But at the same time, we wouldn't dispute with the scientist who tells us for example, that this vaccine is going to help you with this virus. We're not going to go, well, that's not true because science is just really bad because they believe we, you know, we're just chemistry. So, well, they believe some things that we hate, but they believe other things that help us. Philosophers, same thing. They believe some things we know are true. They believe other things that we know are are false. And we have to be sort of discerning and develop the skill to weigh through some of these to say, well, how can it service theology and how has it done it for the past 2000 years? We're talking with Richard G. Howe about why theology needs philosophy. We'll jump right back into that conversation in just a moment. A couple of weeks ago, I got to drive up to beautiful Pine Mountain, Georgia, and spend two days with the fellows of the Impact 360 Institute Gap Year Program. Friends, if you know high school students who are about to graduate, I can't speak highly enough of this program. Impact 360 Institute has created this life-changing experience where students can go spend nine months on campus, and through their holistic learning philosophy, they engage the tough questions of faith and life through trusted advisors like J.P. Moreland and Frank Turek and John Stone Street and myself. They're grounded in biblical community, and they really get to apply what they're learning by living out their faith locally and globally. They go on mission trips. They go and do evangelism. They do service projects. Do you know a next generation leader who has incredible influence and potential and wants to grow in their faith? Learn more about Impact 360 Institute's nine-month gap year by going to impact360.org. If you think your student might be a good fit, there are extremely limited spots left for the 2020-2021 class. So I just want to encourage you to start that application process right away. You can use the promo code ALISA to waive the application fee. Well, I almost titled this episode A Handmaid's Tale, but I thought that might be a little confusing to people. (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, Why is nobody so- listening to my podcast? <laughs> They're like, she's really changed. <laughs> but yeah. but um, that would have been a great title. But uh, often philosophy is referred to as the handmaid of theology. Tell Absolutely. us a little bit about that. Why is that? And why is that <clears throat> important? Well, it started, I think, with Philo, who uh, the, the sort of this allegorical way of reading the Bible. It was a relationship between Abraham and and uh, 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 Hagar and and what was going on then. And he had this sort of metaphor that that since he couldn't have a, a child through Sarah, then he has a child through Hagar. So Hagar helps Abraham sire a child. So for Philo. Uh, Sarah was like theology and Hagar was philosophy. And sometimes you have to go to the philosophy to sort of help the theology out a little bit. Later, though, the imagery got changed to the royal court so that philosophy or theology was considered the queen of the sciences. Uh, I think as Christians, we'd say since God is supreme being and theology is knowledge of God, then theology is supreme knowledge. So philosophy and Christian philosophers have never wanted philosophy to displace the role that theology should play as central because it's truths about God uh, uh, fully. But at the same time, in the royal court imagery, the handmaiden or the handmaid was always running around taking care of the queen, making sure everything she needed was there. She's not trying to displace the queen, but she's trying to help the queen do what only the queen can do best, but she's trying to help her do it unencumbered and, and, and uh, as skillfully as she can. So by, by parallel then, people like me and others would say there are things that philosophy has to bring to the conversation that can help theology do what it needs to do and what only it can do. And oftentimes you find that, I think, in areas like uh, con- in contemporary uh, battles going on, issues like the inerrancy of the Bible with disputes over what does it mean to be true, are disputes over the nature of God. Uh, when the when God when the Bible describes God in these sort of term, physical terms, are they literal or are they just metaphor? I think you can't adjudicate those exegetically. You're going to have to appeal to how God has revealed Himself through creation to know when the Bible speaking figuratively and when it's not. That's a great point, and and that actually leads me right into my next question because one of the there's there's sort of these opposite extremes that can happen when we don't employ good philosophy to help us interpret the Bible. One negative extreme would be to just make everything a metaphor. Everything's an allegory and you can just make it mean whatever you want it to mean because it's not, you know, I, I've seen people come in with this idea of none of the Old Testament is actually historical. They're all just moral tales told through these kind of rich myths or something like that. And that that's one extreme. The other extreme is taking absolutely everything you read in the Bible literally. And I've heard it said uh, actually among conservatives and progressives, and I agree with both on this, that we should not read every word in the Bible literally, but we should read it literally, meaning uh, taking into account the genre, taking into account that the Bible employs figures of speech. When Jesus talks about being a door, nobody, like as as people, apologists always say, it doesn't mean he's got hinges and is made of wood. If, you know, it speaks of him having wings and a face. And when I was in uh, a progressive class, uh, the class I've talked about in my testimony, one of the things that the pastor said was, you know, when the Bible talks about God, 
every he was trying to make the point like everybody turns things into metaphors and, and allegories when god says i have a face or hands he was saying you know even calvin didn't think he had literal hands and a literal face and so his question was how do you know that that's a metaphor but yet maybe some of the more uh, you know, command type instructions that Paul gave are not metaphors. And how do you know the difference? And I had no training at all, but I just remember thinking, well, well, for first thing is like grammar, you know, just like basic grammar would be one answer. Um, but I want to, I want to talk about a very specific example of, uh, what you get when you don't employ good philosophy, when you do take the Bible too literally, and that, and what I mean by too literally is taking everything literally. So we're going to talk about the Dake Bible. So this oh, yeah. is a study Bible that was really popular for a while. I, I, I still see it around here and there. Um, and, and the Dake Study Bible was an example of a, a study Bible that had a lot of influence, I think, on Christians, especially when I was young, because a lot of people I knew had a Dake Bible. Talk, talk to us about what went wrong with the Dake Bible and why that is such a, a perfect example of bad philosophy uh, in interpreting well, yeah, the Bible. Exactly. I, it's, a, it's a perfect example of somebody failing to understand what creation tells us about God and his nature and allowing how God has revealed himself through creation, as Romans one twenty says, can can help us understand when the Bible is talking about God in non-literal terms. And so uh, Dake, in fact, in one of the notes that he has in the New Testament, uh, he, he has this paragraph that just lists all of these body parts uh, that Dake, in his defense, doesn't think are physical, but he thinks they're spiritual body parts, whatever a spiritual body part would be. But he, he lists things like, you know, God has a shape and form of man, and he has uh, body parts like back and hands and fingers and mouth and lips and tongues and feet and eyes and hair and head and all these kind of things. And so he thinks that God has these body parts. Well, what's interesting about that citation from, from his Bible, Annotated Reference Bible, the Jake Annotated Reference Bible, when I show this in a presentation, I have that up on, a, on, the, on the screen, and I ask people, I say, besides the obvious that most of us probably don't believe that God has these body parts, spiritual or otherwise, I ask the audience, what do you think, it, what else do you think it troubles me about this citation? And I let people percolate on that a, a few minutes. And then the next slide, every part of the text of the quote from Dake is gone except the scripture references. So you, then you get to see, well, every one of those is a direct quote from scripture. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro in the earth. The lips of the Lord, the eye, you know, the tongue of God. So I think if Dake were in the room, he would say, "Hey, wait, wait a minute. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, to and fro in the earth. His arm is strong to them who, who, uh, who obey him." And all the, I, that's what the Bible says. This is Dake talking. Mm -hmm. So if you don't believe that he has eyes, you're the one that has the problem, not not me. I'm, I'm just quoting the Bible. Yeah. What I think that illustrates is then it puts his finger on on the nub of, OK, exactly then how are we to adjudicate? Because conspicuously, Dake doesn't mention Ruth or, or Psalms that talk about God's wings and his feathers. Even Dake doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's conspicuous by its absence. So the question I think before us is then how does one do that? How does one judge that God doesn't have these these eyes. And by the way, just at the threat of jumping ahead a little bit, here's why I think it matters even more. Because 
I used to do a presentation on this, and I always use the Dake Study Bible as, a, as an example. And um, uh, Simon Brace, you, you know Simon Brace from, yes. from SES. Yes. We all love him to death. Yeah. He came up to me. He said, Richard, you can't leave the illustration with Dake because the danger is everybody's going to go, well, nobody's that wacky. We're not, you know, people maybe in, in other theological traditions might be more prone to thinking, you know, giving Dake a, uh, you know, well, maybe he's right, like you were given in your testimony. But your rank-and-file evangelical that I might find myself in front of would just go, yeah, Dake, he's just a wacko, and then move on and conclude erroneously, well, then there's really not a problem. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you can smell it that far away, that you got to be so asinine as to be a thinnest, finest Jennings Dake, then, you know, there's really no problem. He said, what you need to do is, is add... Uh, an illustration of, that hits a lot closer to home. Okay, how about open theism? Mm-hmm. That's a legitimate debate going on among evangelical scholars, all of whom uh, love God's word, love God, but yet they say when the Bible depicts God as uh, being surprised about something or, or, or regretting something, uh, uh, like I regret that I, I repented that I made man, as it says in Genesis, or when he offered up when Abraham was offering up Isaac and he's about to plunge the knife and then God stops him, now I know that you're, you know, that you're faithful to me, as if he didn't know. Well, people like Gregory Boyd go, look, that's just what the Bible is saying. I'm just letting it speak for itself. So now all of a sudden you go, okay, now this is getting serious. Because now we're talking about serious theological and philosophical differences that aren't so plausible, aren't so just uh, initially implausible like the Dake Study Bible. So what I see the problem then that, that that we're facing is how are we able to judge when the Bible speaks metaphorically or literally about God? We, it can't be an exegetical merely. You can't use genre, for example, to say, well, it's the genre tells me what the text means. You'd already have to know what the text meant Otherwise, you wouldn't know the genre. You can't look at a hieroglyphic and tell me whether that's poetry or narrative until you can understand the hieroglyphic. So here's the example I I try. I I changed the the example so the principle is easy to see. Isaiah 55, 12 says, You shall go out with joy and be led out with peace, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, I submit to you, everyone that reads that recognize that as poetic language. But the reason we do is because we all have a sufficient knowledge of the nature of a tree such that when someone ascribes hands to trees, we know they're speaking poetically, assuming they know what the word tree means and that kind of stuff. But how do we know the nature of trees? Well, I mean, it'll have something to do with the fact that we see, see, hear, taste, touch, and smell trees, at least. I see a bunch of trees. I know what a tree is. You tell me, I've got a tree in my backyard, I know exactly what you mean. Even though you didn't say anything particular, what kind of tree it was, whether it's deciduous or evergreen, what flower-bearing, fruit-bearing, sick or well, tall or short, nothing particular, but you use the universal tree. I have a tree in my backyard, I know what you mean. Knowing then the nature of a tree sufficiently, I can recognize poetic language about a tree to to a certain extent. I think in principle... It has to be the same thing with God. There's got to be some way that we can have a sufficient knowledge of the nature of God so that we can know when the scriptures are speaking literally about God and when he's not. The date stuff is probably easy for most evangelicals. 
to say, well, I, I know that's not really literal. He doesn't literally have lips or whatever. But the Gregory Boyd stuff is a lot more challenging. Mm. So Boyd would say, I agree with you, uh, Richard, that God doesn't have lips. But I do take the changing his mind as a literal description of God. Whereas I would go, well, to me, to say God changes his mind is just as is unacceptable as to say that he has lips. And, and, and really for the same reasons. Yeah. What I like about Boyd in his treatment of this, it, at least he recognizes that the key differences between somebody like him and somebody like me has a lot to do with Greek philosophy, mm. if you will. And he at least acknowledges that that's what's going on. He thinks it's a that's a bad thing, that, yeah. it, that Greek philosophy's had a deleterious effect. And I think he naively, from what I can tell, thinks that he's not employing any philosophy. He's just letting the evidence speak for itself. That's almost a direct quote. I'm yeah. going, no, no, you're bringing your own metaphysics and epistemology stuff to the table, just like I am. Yeah. That's what the debate needs to rage. It's not, I'm, I'm somehow being deleteriously influenced by Greek thought, and you're not being deleteriously influenced by anything. We're yeah. just having the battle. But the battle needs to rage, I think, at that level of the metaphysics, the philosophy, if you will. Well, I'm so glad that you brought all that up and talked about that because what's so just as I'm hearing you speak, because I have not read, I know that Greg Boyd is an open theist, although I haven't read his work on that. But what's so fascinating to me about what you're saying is that he'll take a verse like that and say, you know, that's literal. We're going to take that literally. But then he's written a 4,000 page book on hermeneutics. And I believe he calls it the cruciform hermeneutic. And of course, what I'm about to say is going to be vastly oversimplified because it's a 4,000 page book. But essentially, from my understanding, what he's saying is that we are to filter everything in the Bible through the, the lens of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So anytime you see Yahweh in the Old Testament doing something that is not that, that is not Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, then you, in some way that, that doesn't really reflect who Yahweh is. And so he's literally taking this, mat, like you say, metaphysics and epistemology and cramming it all through that one verse of Jesus on the cross. And if anyone's listening and you want to just investigate that a little bit more, Paul Copan has written a review of Greg Boyd's hermeneutics book. And I think you can find that on the Gospel Coalition. I'll put a link to it in the podcast notes. Also, there's a great debate between Paul Copan and Greg Boyd on Justin Brierley's Unbelievable podcast podcast if you want to learn a little bit more about all of that. But that I'm so glad you brought up the idea of knowing what the philosophical influences around you are. Because a lot of times, if I'm critiquing, let's say, a progressive Christian doctrine or something along those lines, what inevitably will always come back at me is someone will say, well, are you not influenced? Or do you not have biases? And this is such an important point. Yes, we all have biases. We are all influenced by our culture. We're all influenced by the philosophies around us. But the, but the key thing is to do our best to understand what they are and to parse through them and say, okay, this, this is incorrect. This is correct. And, and not all biases are bad. Someone could be biased to say two plus two equals four, and they would be actually right, despite yes. their, and that would actually not be a bad bias. Yeah, and I, and I would actually characterize that just to interrupt your your, your yeah, please. thinking here. I would actually uh, describe what you just pointed out as 
uh, in light of the fact that we all can be scandalized by our biases or can be helped by our biases or our commitments or preconditions or presuppositions or whatever, uh, it is undeniable, I would assert, that at some level we actually have an undeniable knowledge about reality. So that when it comes to things like two plus two is four or the law of non-contradiction, uh, I don't even think those are biases. Those are undeniably true of the nature of reality itself. So there's nothing anterior now to the reality. There's no place back behind reality that I could go or that I have to go in order to make judgments about reality. Reality is my is the first thing I encounter through my sensory experience. Uh, and so there. So the key would be to find well, what are things that we can we can't deny that we know, and then and then uh, and I think they are concrete, real things about reality that we can't deny that we know. Not just this logic or I exist that Descartes did. I mean that's fine, but I think you can get a lot something a lot more robust than merely uh, that. Uh, well, I think therefore I am, and I'm trying to spin out an entire philosophy based on some little logical fulcrum. I think there's more to it, but the principle there is. Uh, we do have biases, but we, but all of us are part of reality. All of us mm-hmm. are beings in reality, and there are things about being real that are just undeniable to us as 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 knowers. And we can leverage that for our argument for the existence of God, the nature of God, and the truth of Christianity. So, Richard, you in your talk about philosophy being the handmaid of theology, you talk about how philosophy works as a safeguard for doctrines. So let's look at a couple of examples. So first, how does philosophy actually safeguard the doctrine of, let's say, God's attributes, since we're talking about open theism and and all of that? How does it safeguard that? Yes. So I do a presentation, uh, and, and typically what I mean when I say I do a presentation, it's either things that come out of my classes and or things that I do in conferences and like you and I speak at uh, there. And I do a presentation titled God Fading Away, where I try to uh, summarize a, a fairly uniform picture of the attributes of God from the church fathers up until the 20th century, really, by selecting main thinkers and or confessions of faith, uh, creeds and stuff that give this battery of attributes, what I just call the superlative attributes of God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, all-good, these kinds of of attributes. And I try to document how these attributes of God are fading away, that you now, for example, like omniscience. I I would say that an open theist denies the classical doctrine of omniscience. And I'm sure Boyd would agree that he denies the classical doctrine of omniscience. He's just going to say that's not really what omniscience should be. Uh, okay, so we can have that debate. Uh, you had some uh, evangelicals like Clark Pinnock, for example, if you can call him an evangelical. I think he probably would have self-identified with one, even though he was flirting on the edges of, of process theology. But Clark Pinnock entertained in his last book that he wrote before he went to be with the Lord in his book titled Most Moved Mover – which if anybody mm. knows uh, Greek philosophy would know that's basically a slam against Aristotle's unmoved yeah. mover. Pinnock was actually entertaining the notion that maybe God is a physical being. Uh, after all, all the being, all the persons I know are physical, so if God's going to, if he's a person, why shouldn't I think he's physical, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, okay, so how could we go from all of these superlative attributes that God is timeless and spaceless and all-powerful, how could we go from that to evangelicals flirting with what might sound Mormon? to some mm. a physical being. Something is going on. So 
again, as self-serving as it sounds, I think the debate has to be a debate over the metaphysics. It's not an exegetical debate. While I think the Bible does teach the superlative attributes of God, it also, quote, teaches this God who's located in space. I mean, it, the Exodus wandering, God talks about being moved around during the wanderings. Uh, uh, he talks about being, coming down to the people as if he was a spatial being. So uh, we have to decide, okay, was these, are these references, the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, as Solomon said, how much less this temple, which bespeaks of his omnipresence, is that literal? And then all of these spatial references to God, figures of speech, or is the are the spatial references to God literal? And then Solomon's is a figure of speech, maybe a hyperbole. Well, you can't decide that exegetically because that's the very thing that's in dispute. Mm. Uh, you can't you settle it by an appeal to reality. All right. Not even appeal to philosophy, an appeal to reality, just like you would do with the tree. How do you settle whether a tree does or doesn't have hands? You appeal to real trees. Well, how do we settle whether God is or isn't spatial or temporal or whatever? You appeal to the real God. But, but how do we have access? Well, we certainly have access through his word, but that's sort of what's creating the challenge, right? We don't know how to take yeah. verses. So is there some access to a knowledge about the nature of God that's outside of Scripture? Well, I think that's what we've been suggesting since the beginning. As Paul says in Romans 1.20, the invis- this weird language, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood through the things that are made. Notice he doesn't say being understood by a careful exegesis of the scriptures. Mm. Not, and again, I'm not, I'm not against careful exegesis of the scriptures. I'm just suggesting yeah. that's not going to be able to, to, to settle the issue. So Boyd can't go, well, we just let the evidence speak for itself. No, you're not. You're bringing some kind of philosophical metaphysic that you get from your understanding of reality, and you bring that to understand your Bible. Mm, you mentioned yeah. earlier grammar. You do that with grammar, don't you? You don't get grammar from the Bible. It's not an insult to God to say, well, you have to have grammar before you can understand your Bible. Oh, I can't believe that. We put the Bible first. We wouldn't even know to put the Bible first. You wouldn't even know what a Bible was if you didn't know how, how to yeah. read if you didn't know grammar. And you have to know how to read. You have to you know have to how know to read. What words, so yeah. Knowing grammar, knowing these, they're basically part of what it is to be a human being, the way God has created us uh, in his image. By the way, you know, you mentioned uh, the uh, cruciform hermeneutic. Uh, earlier with uh, Father, forgive them. I mean, what if somebody just said, well, I, I, the template I pick is depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into <laughs> everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And if right. verse doesn't say that, then it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and that's wow. from Jesus yeah. as well. How does yes. boy pick one and not the other? You know, it's like, yeah. man, you can imagine yeah. what that book would read like. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. And one point that Paul Copan made in his debate with him was that Greg Boyd was essentially saying anything that's violent, any violent portrayal of uh, Yahweh, you know, can't fit through that lens of Father Forgive Them. And and Paul Copan brought up the point that in all 4,000 pages, he never once defines violence, mm. what, what that word even means. Interesting. And, and 
you know, which, which was a very interesting point, but, um, yeah, this, this is important stuff about philosophy, safeguarding doctrines, and you are a great defender of inerrancy of the inerrancy of scripture. Uh, so quickly, I want to, in the time we have left, try to get through how it safeguards inerrancy and how it safeguards the the doctrine of faith, but just very quickly touch on inerrancy because you are, you know, you're saying things like you have to have grammar and you have to have, you know, understand how to recognize figures of speech. And there is no one who defends inerrancy more than you. So how does how does philosophy safeguard the doctrine of biblical inerrancy? So my, my mentor, Norm Geisler, who was a co-founder of, of Southern Evangelical Seminary, he wrote an article back in 1980. The article I actually put on my website. So people go to richardghow.com and click on resources and then papers and scroll down. You can find this article and it's titled The Concept of Truth in the Inerrancy Debate. And there, what he was uh, talking about was the influence of people like Jack Rogers and Donald McKim out of Fuller Seminary and this sort of modified theory of truth called uh, intentional theory of truth or functional theory, that something is true if it fulfills the, the, the intention of the author. So if I tell you, well, how do I get to Walmart? Well, you pull out on Main Street, turn right, go a mile, you'll pass an auto parts store and then on, that's on your right, and then Walmart is right after that. Well, suppose you do that, you turn right on Main Street, you go down, the auto parts store is actually on your left. It's not on your right. But you still found the Walmart, okay? Well, you probably wouldn't quibble to go, well, you know, you just need to throw these directions out. No, he got a fact wrong. So people were doing that with their Bible to say, okay, so the mustard seed's not the smallest seed. Okay, so there wasn't the Corinius' census in, in Luke chapter 2 or whatever. That's fine. The point of the Bible is to lead us to salvation. And so if it makes mistakes along the way, well, the, the only way they're able to defend two things, I believe the inerrancy of the Bible, but I believe the Bible has these mistakes in it, is to qualify their theory of truth. Well, uh-huh. I did a presentation sort of picking back up on that uh, 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 titled uh, The Concept of Truth in the Inerrancy Debate Revisited, because I think now we're having the same kinds of squabbles over inerrancy that at least involve uh, revisiting this concept of truth, which I would lobby for a correspondence theory of truth, basically, that a statement is true if it, if it corresponds to reality. So the statement, it's raining, would be true if it's raining. You know, it's, right. it's just straightforward. Now, there are things to say about all of that, obviously, we don't have time to do. So that's that's one thing. But the, the, the issue of what is truth is a philosophical question. Just like the issue of uh, how far away is the sun or how fast does light go? These are scientific questions. They just are philosophical questions. And it's, it's, it's uniquely, philosophy is uniquely qualified to flesh out the debates about, well, what is a functional theory of truth or a coherence theory or a correspondence theory or whatever? Hey, we, you need to, uh, uh, you know, you need to entertain the arguments. You know, uh, it's a shame in a way, and it's a commentary that we have to have a lot of these debates. Because I mm-hmm. submit to you a lot of this stuff, normal people, I got in trouble for using the expression normal, but what <laughs> I meant by normal was people that hadn't gone to a university and been disabused of what you would normally believe as a person. You know what it means Mm. when people say it's raining? You know what that means. You know what most things are. But unfortunately, now a lot of these common sense notions are being brought into question. So now as Christians, Mm. we have to backfill the conversation to say, all right, well, here's what I mean by truth, or here's what I mean by change, or here's what I mean by cause. And so uh, that's part of the debate about 
the other then would be stuff having to do with the philosophy of language. How does meaning get from a meaner through a medium like written language to the reader? What is that process? My, I have to do a plug for my brother, Tom, who wrote a book titled Objectivity and Biblical Interpretation, where he deals with this uh, notion of meaning and uh, objectivity in meaning in the Scripture. So those are two issues right there, the notion of truth uh, and the notion of meaning and its conveyance through language. Both of those are philosophical questions. Right, because if we think about what is true, and you you know you mentioned the correspondence theory of truth, it's when you say something that basically lines up with reality, when someone comes along and says, well, the Bible has factual errors, but basically it's pointing you salvation, it's pointing you to truth, you know, you can use philosophy to say, no, a factual error is an error, which would make the Bible errant. And we can't we can't think about it that way. Right. Would you say that's that's Absolutely. kind of a fair I summary? I think so. Uh, I, I would rather someone just say, I don't believe the Bible is inerrant than yeah. say, I believe the Bible is inerrant. But I think John changed the day of the week uh, that Jesus was crucified from what the synoptics have. Or uh, Jesus actually didn't say, I, I thirst. Uh, 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 I mean, he actually didn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, I thirst, or however the causal arrow goes, as some redactors are arguing about the words of Jesus. I just go, look, lots of people don't believe in inerrancy. Probably C.S. Lewis didn't believe in inerrancy of the Bible. And we drool over C.S. Lewis. It's okay. I mean, I would regret if someone didn't believe in inerrancy. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying I would rather someone just embrace the fact that, well, no, I don't really believe in inerrancy, like Gregory Boyd has done in his latest book. He just says, hey, we ought to celebrate the fact that Bible has errors in it. It gives us hope that God can use fallible human beings. Okay, that's fair. At least he's being honest. He's being honest and consistent. At least I haven't read the book, but it seems like he's being consistent, which doesn't surprise me, I don't suppose, that he would, being as smart as he is. That, I think, is a lot uh, uh, more—I can live with that. But I regret that the term inerrancy—now we're just—we're having a debate about the debate. You know, but I— I'm willing to engage that debate, uh, but it's uh, it's unfortunate that we have to do that. Yeah, and I'm thankful that we have people like you, uh, capable and qualified to engage that debate. Uh, so very quickly, as we close out here, when I was in high school, the Word of Faith movement was really popular. It seemed like it was just kind of everywhere. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a resurgence of it, uh, just with maybe different aesthetics. So let's talk about how philosophy safeguards the doctrine of faith. Yes. So um, you can talk about uh, ways in which uh, faith and reason do or don't relate to one another. And I deal in in my presentations on how theology needs philosophy. You can get a slide deck, PDF slide deck of a presentation of what we're talking about today on that same website. Don't mean to just keep plugging my website, but this is you can get these resources. Uh, So there's something to be said initially about how and whether faith and reason intersect and I deal with various, I, what I call misunderstandings, both within and without the Christian church. And by the way, I tell you what's at stake here. If your reader or your hearers are, are not familiar with Robert Riley's book, The Closing of the Muslim Mind, he gives a great reconnaissance of the medieval battle of what's prior, what's prior faith or reason, that Sunni Islam struggled with, and Christianity did too. And Sunni Islam, by and large, opted faith trumps reason. And he argues how that arrested Islam's cultural development. And they were no longer open to new ideas in economics and government and private property and the, and these kinds of things. 
see you okay well look that's a pretty big thing that's at stake here uh, but but then more to the point of the word of faith movement uh, you get then having to talk about what faith is in the word of faith movement faith is a force and what I show in my presentation and by the way this is not that controversial among some of the sources that I use what the word of faith movement is teaching is exactly what you would learn in witchcraft and mm. cult and they think that's part of the argument that it's true. Uh, like, oh. See, even the witches know this stuff. That faith is some kind of force that you act that you activate by spoken words. And so I try to argue that that is just a false view of the nature of reality. Much yeah. let aside, it's a false it's a false view in terms of the biblical model of what faith is. So you have the problem of the definition of faith in the Word of Faith movement. You also revisit this problem of the nature of God. Because now humans are gods in the Word of Faith movement. We're all divine. We're all little gods. Yeah. So we, we, you know, uh, Kenneth Copeland said that God, the Creator, is six two and weighs a couple of hundred pounds and lives on a planet. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why we're in His image. Because hey, I've heard the audio. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I played that yeah. audio in, in my, yeah. my courses and stuff. So you've got the nature of faith itself, specifically faith as a power or force. And then we are all little gods. All of those things, I think, can't be sufficiently dispensed with by just mere exegetical considerations. That's part of the argument. Certainly theology is part of the argument, but philosophy is part of the argument, too. You have to appeal to certain fundamentals about the nature of reality and that prove to us that God can't be the way some of these people suggest that he might be. Yeah, because they all have Bible verses they use. Absolutely to support what they're saying. Well, Richard, it's been so delightful having you on today. Uh, again, if you're listening and you want to learn more, go to richardghow.com. Some great stuff on there. Well, Richard, thanks so much uh, for coming on and, and let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Friends, I wanted to pop in with a, an additional thought here. I don't normally do this, but as I was listening to our conversation in preparation of posting it, I wanted to tell you about a little personal anecdote that came to mind that I think might help round out the conversation regarding the Dake Bible, because I realized that there may be some of you who grew up with the Dake Bible, maybe you knew Christians who were wonderful Christian, godly people who had a Dake Bible. Maybe you have a Dake Bible on your bookshelf. And so when we're talking about some of these things being obvious, you might be thinking, well, I mean, it's not obvious to me or it wasn't obvious to me. So I want to tell you about my dad. So my dad did not grow up in a Christian home and he heard the gospel for the first time as a drugged out hippie. He had been searching for God. He had been searching for God through Buddhism, through other Eastern religions and belief systems. He had searched for God through the Arantia book and the Timothy Leary drug trip. And so when he heard the gospel and surrendered his life to Christ, one of the first study Bibles or even study materials that he had as a, a new Christian was the Dake Bible. And so for someone like him who wasn't raised with a really good, solid theological background or, or raised with really good doctrine, 
the Dake Bible was a whole lot less weird than some of the other things that he had been studying. And so I think for for those of us who, who may not have been exposed to, to more solid doctrine, it's really not going to sound that out there. And so, uh, of course, as my dad grew and matured in the Lord and was discipled by solid people, he, he got that all sorted out. But I just wanted to offer that one little personal anecdote in case you were listening to that going, man, you know, what's wrong with me that I didn't think that was so obvious? Take care and we'll see you next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.